Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniela. I have been coming to Life in Deep Ellum for over 10 years. Um, I'm also on the board of directors for like a few more weeks, uh, rolling off to make space for some new folks in the community. I'm also on the preaching team, a few of us here. Um, So we've been in a series this Lent where we are talking about our limitations as humans. We suffer, we make mistakes, we hold biases, we die, we're fragile. And as a warning, today's message um, does feel a little bit heavy. Um, It also does feel real, particularly, you know, this Lent, it kind of makes sense and it fits. So I want to start by telling you a story about a bricklayer in Pennsylvania. This is not um, my story, but I am taking pieces as I know it. So this was a hardworking man. He uh, built the house, the home that he and his wife and his son lived in um, near Pittsburgh. When the man's son was 10 years old, um, the dad became diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. When the son was 10 years old, he quickly became familiar with words like chemotherapy and radiation. And in weeks of waiting for results, the the dad really became angry. There were lots of changes in his behavior. Um, He was irritable, bothered by small things. Um, And why not? He was obviously grieving this, this diagnosis. And he got sicker. And he got sicker. And... Um, this dad was once the dad in the neighborhood that would go sledding with all the kids, or he'd go play ball with all the kids, and he loved to hunt, and he loved to fish. And the son assumed that his dad would eventually get back to doing all of those things again. Um, But then there were the lasts, the last family vacation, ones to Niagara Falls. There wouldn't be another. And things were getting worse, and at 38 years old, the dad had to go to the hospital again. He had more tests done. He was really frail. And his wife and son were visiting him, and and after they'd been visiting for a bit, the son went over to his dad and said, Dad, we're going home now. And his dad said something, but he was really frail and weak, so it was really hard to hear what kind of noises he had made, what he had said. Uh, So the son repeated himself, Dad, we're going home now. And his dad said just above a whisper, I'm going home too. And the wife and the son looked at each other with tears streaming down their faces, uh, or tears down their cheeks and smiles on their faces. This was it. Um, the author, who I got the story from, Darren Doherty, describes in his book, When God Became a Parent, my mom and I both knew that he wasn't talking about the little brick house that he had built on Woodmont Street. This dad was referring to his faith that Jesus was preparing a home for him. And the dad didn't get better. He didn't leave the hospital healthy and well. Um, What he was saying, he was going home to God. I never knew my grandfather, though I'm named after him, Daniel. He died at 38 years old due to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. My dad was only 13. And maybe you don't believe in heaven the way my grandfather did. Maybe you have a different belief about what happens after you die. And regardless, The story shows how fragile and heartbreaking life can be. Where's the happy ending? And again, depending on what you believe, you might 
see a hopefulness to the end of the story, but no matter how we spin it, it's still sad. It still hurts. Some of you have experienced really great losses in your life. Uh, Maybe people you love have died. And maybe your losses aren't related to death, uh, but I can safely assume that you have experienced grief in some way and and grieving. You You have experienced that before. And believe it or not, Jesus did too. So today we're going to be in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 45, and that's a lot of reading, and I debated whether or not to read it all. Jenna told me, go ahead and pick what verses, you know, you want to use. But this is a story, and there's a lot of really good stuff, and so if we take pieces of the story, I feel like we kind of miss the story itself. So um, some of you are probably thinking, yes, read it, and some of you are like, give me the Cliff Notes version. Um, But I'm going to read it. I'm going to kind of give a little bit of my own commentary as we read it. And because it's a story, I invite you to engage with it however you'd like to. So if you would like to read in your Bible, or if you need to borrow a Bible, you can raise your hand and you can borrow one of ours. Um, Or if you prefer, you can close your eyes and imagine the story. I've done that before, kind of just sitting with it and imagining if I was there or what that that scene might have been like. Um, So it's up to you. And if you change your mind, you start reading and you'd rather just stop reading, you can do that. Or if you start imagining and would rather read, you can do that too. So... We're going to start John chapter 11, verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. We sang about him today. Or he was, his name was in the song. Uh, We lived in Bethany, or he lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Or as another version says, um, the one you love is sick. Which, as a quick side note, we also know Mary and Martha from the story in Luke. Marcel actually uh, mentioned this last week, too, in passing. Okay, verse 4. But when Jesus heard about this, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved... Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, which just feels very comedic to me, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad that I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. That's what it says. Again, feels just very comedic to me. Um, Okay, um, verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. 
Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners, and I kind of picture Martha crouching down and whispering in her ear. And Martha told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people were at the house consoling Mary, who were at the house consoling Mary, saw her leave so hastily, they assumed that she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll aside the stone, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believed? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it loud, out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. I know it's long, but it's a story. <laughs> Can't pick and choose what parts of the story we're gonna, gonna read. So as I sat with this text, um, I found myself kind of going in circles, wondering why. Jesus literally let Lazarus go through the process of dying. He waited in Bethany, allowing Mary and Martha to experience the fear and the pain of losing their brother. Why? I mean, sure, it showed God's power. Sure, it says that people believed in him. It's not like every day that people come walking out of tombs when they've been dead for four days. It's a big deal. Um, Jesus says that so people there would believe that he was God. And that's a pretty compelling reason, but it can seem pretty cold-hearted to us, or at least to me, maybe not to you, but that's how it feels to me sometimes. Let Lazarus go through the process of dying. Let his sisters have that fear, and then they start to really grieve the fact that their brother has died. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't feel good to be collateral damage. And again, maybe that's just me, but I'm have, I have a hard time kind of wrapping my mind around that. How does that work? Um, sure, you had to die first, but at least you get to live again, only to have to die again. He had to die twice. He died again. The sickness, this sickness didn't ultimately end in death like Jesus said, but Lazarus still died again, and so did the other two people that Jesus raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter and a widow's son. So, what's the point? It doesn't feel like a happily ever after. 
Um, so, as I've studied the story for a few weeks, I've come up with an answer to this question of why, the question of what's the point. So you might want to open up notes in your phone or grab a pen and paper so you can write down my answer. <laughs> I don't know. That's my answer. I don't know. Um, we're not supposed to ask why questions, so I guess that's why, because I can't answer it. And so today, um, we're going to look at a couple of things that are maybe a little bit different um, than how we normally hear the story. And I'm not solving the age-old question of why God allows suffering or why he allows death. Um, this isn't the first time that God's intentions don't reach the, con reach the concreteness of my finite brain. So not answering the question of why Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, or at least not really. Um, church history does a pretty good job of highlighting Jesus' deity. Right? Him being God. Um, if you're familiar with the book of John, then you might be familiar with the I am statements that Jesus makes. And one of those is in this passage that we just read. Um, this, Jesus uses this phrase 23 times in the book of John. And in case you're not totally aware of what this, the significance of this phrase is, I'm always very happy to talk about this. I've done this before. Um, so let me give you a little background. So the Greek words, the Greek, ego, a me, I am, points back to the Old Testament when God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel that I am had sent Moses to them. So every time that Jesus says, I am, he's claiming divinity. He's saying, I am the same as Yahweh. He's, he's connecting himself there. So in this book, the Gospel of John, where we see over and over and over the claim that Jesus is God, we also see possibly one of the richest portrayals of Jesus' humanity. In other belief systems, and other religions, this humanity is not really the norm or even necessarily portrayed as the ideal for gods. The Iliad says, the gods ordain the lot of man to suffer while they themselves are free from care. Or Homer's gods and goddesses might be seen weeping at their own wounds, but wouldn't be touched by the pain of humans. Or William Ewart, Ewart, somebody probably knows how to say that. Gladstone says, the gods, while they dispense afflictions upon the earth, which are neither sweetened by love nor elevated by a distinct disciplinary purpose, take care to keep themselves beyond all touch of grief or care. But Jesus, as portrayed in the Bible, and this story goes against all the normal portrayals of deity. Gods aren't supposed to be empathetic, especially not to humans. So there are three things that I want to just briefly mention today. Um, the first would be, and these are observations that I've, that I've come with, sat with um, these last few weeks, and the first is Jesus' love. I noticed that a few times in this passage, it's specifically stated about Jesus' love. We read about it from the, the writer, the author of the book writes about it, the observers say it, the sisters say it. It's apparent to everyone that Jesus loved these friends of his. And the Greek word used when the sisters, the observers talked about this love was philo. When the writer talks about it, it's agapao, which both of these are a little bit different, but they're pretty much inter interchangeable. Um, they're a warm, affectionate kind of love, a close friendship. They, and a love that involves preference and choosing. Imagine that type of friendship maybe from your own life, right? Like who would be a really close friend, a, a warm, affectionate kind of love that you have for them? 
And so I just think it's really telling that these are words that were used to describe Jesus' friendship with these people. That's how people observed. Um, and, you know, real-life friends, not even just his disciples. And there's a joke or meme, and I think Jenna even maybe shared it a couple weeks ago, that floats around about, like, the, one of the biggest miracles Jesus did is the fact that he had 12 close friends during his 30s, you know? Um, but he had more than that, because, you know, not even just the disciples, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and who knows who else might be considered friends of Jesus. And so um, I just think it's really beautiful that, you know, people who were there got to experience that Jesus felt this love and felt this affection for other people. He had a heartfelt reaction and expression. And it showed John, the author, and everyone else that Jesus cared deeply for these people. And the text doesn't say that Jesus said that he loved them. Everyone just knew that he did. So um, it was a love that was observed and a love that was felt. And I think that's just really beautiful. So, um, Next thing I want to talk about is Jesus' grief. We see really clearly in the passage of the humanity of Jesus that the text describes that Jesus was angry. And not all translations say that. Some will use different words. But the one I chose today, um, New Living Translation, says he was angry. It says, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled when he saw Mary and Martha, and, or Mary and the people wailing with her. Um, and it says that he was still angry when he got to the tomb. And most preachers will say the same kinds of things, that Jesus was angry at the state of the world due to sin. Okay, that might be so. Um, others will say he was emotional about those who were lost that he came to save. Okay, I mean, maybe. Others will say Jesus was angry at how Mary and the people with her were weeping without hope, whereas Martha at least seemed to believe that Jesus could do something. Possibly. We really just can't know for sure. And then Jesus wept. I wonder if all these assumptions are reading more into the passage than we need to. Why can't Jesus just grieve? Why can't we let him weep at the fact that his dear friend had to go through the process of dying? His friends had to grieve the loss of their brother. Why can't he be em empathetic to the pain of his friends? Why do we have to automatically jump to his deity in the passage and s just skip over his humanity? Why can't it be his humanity and his deity in this passage? He was fully God and fully man. And he wasn't a stranger to grief. This wouldn't have been the first time that someone Jesus loved would have died. Uh, most scholars assume that since Joseph, Jesus' dad-ish, wasn't uh, mentioned in Jesus' adult years, that Joseph probably died sometime after Jesus was 12 years old. And regardless of the fact that Joseph was not related to Jesus by blood, this still would have been someone that cared for him and nurtured him and loved him. And so that would have meant loss in some way. It was someone he was connected to and attached to. And so I think we can safely assume that this would have meant grief. Both of my parents' dads died when they were teenagers, 12 and 13. And that is something that still impacts them today and really our whole family today. So why should we assume that Jesus has somehow moved on from the grief that he experienced as well? And not only that, not more than a few years earlier, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded by Herod. I don't see Jesus just like, hmm, meh. 
seeing a few. I don't see that happening, right? Oh, my cousin, it's not a big deal. I'll see him, see him when I get there. That's not, I, I can't see Jesus responding in that way. So this wouldn't have been the first time that Jesus had experienced the loss of someone that he loves due to death. So this weeping at Lazarus' tomb, it couldn't have been the first time Jesus met grief. He knew what it was like for someone that he loved to die. And in church culture, we like to bring up um, passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that says, Paul says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. And I think a lot of times we use this passage to tell people who are grieving that they shouldn't be so sad. On a scale of 1 to 10, you can only be sad and grieve to a 4 because you're supposed to have hope. Those people who aren't believers and they don't have any hope, they can be sad to a 10, but not you. Mm-mm, nope. You can be sad to a 10 and, y'all, you can be sad to a 10 and you can have hope to a 10. Which I don't know about you, my hope's usually not that high though. but and right Jesus is fully God and he's fully man why can't there be hope and there be grief why don't we why can't we make space for that Jesus told Martha I am the resurrection and the life and he still wept as he made his way to his friend's tomb to call him out we know that there's life in Jesus but Jesus shows us that it's okay to grieve Jesus is the life, and he still grieved death. So in a society, and even a church culture, that tells us to pull ourselves up and move on, have some more hope, have some more faith, Jesus says that you can grieve. And there seems to be a holiness to grieving. And in this season of Lent, that sure seems really appropriate, right? This idea of grief as we're making our way towards Easter. So Jesus mourns Lazarus, and then he raises Lazarus. So the last thing I want to touch on is Jesus' life. And when I say life, I don't mean like his time on earth put in a box in like 33 and a half years. I mean like his essence, the the essence of life, the giving of life, Jesus' life. I would be remiss if we stopped at grief. And that, that doesn't erase our grief to move on to talking about life, but we can't stop there. There's so much in this passage that is cause for hope. And we see in Jesus' exchange with Martha that Martha knew Jesus could do something. But it sure doesn't seem like this is exactly what she had in mind. That's not what she was expecting. Jesus says, I am, again, those, those words, ego, a me, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus refers to himself in this way. A couple chapters later in John 14, 6, Jesus says, or it says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Again, I am. He's making himself the same as Yahweh. He's not just saying, I give life, or I am life. He's saying, I am the life. The one. That's me. Hey, I'm life. Not the cereal. Um, The thing, the person that gives life to everything because he himself is the life, Jesus. Okay, you know Dwayne Johnson, what's he called? The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. If it was Jesus, we could say Jesus the life Christ. (laughs) I'm kidding because Christ is literally not his last name, but but (laughs) thank you for still laughing even though you knew that joke was coming. I tried it on Aaron first. (laughs) 
So here we are. Lazarus has died. He was like dead, dead. Four days in a tomb. In Jewish culture, bodies were typically wrapped in linen shortly after death, and they were buried in a cave or a grave. And because bodies weren't mummified or typically cremated, um, then they would start to smell, especially around day four. So Lazarus was dead, and his body was decaying. And even today, with our fancy medicine and technologies, we really can't do anything about death. Sometimes we can delay it. That's the best we can do. So they get to the tomb, and Martha protests, telling Jesus, listen, Jesus, it's really going to smell bad. We shouldn't do this. Paraphrased, but that's the message. And Jesus is like, um, Martha, didn't we talk about this like 10 minutes ago? Right? So in verses 41 to 44, I'm going to read them again. So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bowed in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. So I want to tie in what Marcel said last week. He said, when God speaks, God works. And then he also said, when God works, the result is life. Jesus spoke, Jesus worked, and the result was quite literally life. So we know from John chapter 1, verse 3, that God created everything through Jesus, and nothing was created except through him. So I don't know what that experience would have been like for Lazarus being resurrected. Um, My brain can't quite wrap around that. But I have a lot of questions and a lot of wonder. Um, Were there any physical signs when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb? Was there a weird shift in the breeze, a chill in the air? Was there anything that happened kind of around Um, Or even I wonder, what would it have been like to be called back to life by the voice that spoke Lazarus into being? What would it have been like as the created to be called back by the creator? And notice that Jesus uses Lazarus, uses, uses, uses (laughs) Lazarus' name. Jesus, Lazarus knew Jesus as a friend. So his voice was like doubly familiar, Right? Is anyone able to like kind of vividly recall what it's like to be woken up? I can really think back, especially to when like I would be woken up as a child by my parents, and that was much nicer and less creepy than how my kids wake me up these days. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I can vividly remember what it's like to be woken up by my parents. Daniela, it's time to get up. You know, it's like you feel yourself stirring and moving, and I actually hated being woken up. Um, So I know what it's like to be awakened but awakened from the dead and hearing the voice of the creator, my creator, that is, that's a lot to take in. (laughs) Was Jesus' voice familiar to Lazarus because Jesus was Lazarus' friend? Or was Jesus' voice familiar to Lazarus because Lazarus' subconscious recognized it? When I, like, imagine this and contemplate this and think about this, I get really excited. I can't tell. It's so cool to think about that. So the band's going to come, and we're going to do a song again here in a second, and then um, we'll close by doing a liturgy together after that. But Jesus can do that. He can awaken. So here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. Poor guy's still wrapped up in all the burial linens. And I also am now going to do a spoiler alert and a quick pause. 
this story is only found in John's gospel. And John gives us all these details about how Lazarus came out of this tomb. He's all bound. He's all in his burial clothes, his hands, his feet, his face, everything. He's wrapped up. And this is in stark difference to how John describes in chapter 20 of the gospel, Jesus' resurrection, where the linen wrappings are in one area and the face, the, the, the piece that goes over Jesus' face is folded and separate from that. John wants to make sure we know the big difference in these accounts. So, okay, let's back up. Lazarus comes out, still wrapped up, and Jesus tells the people around to help the poor guy out of the burial clothes. And it says that many people who were there believed in Jesus because of this. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus makes decisions that seem irrational to everyone around him, even the disciples who were with him more than probably anybody. And to us, sometimes they make sense because we get a bird's eye view, right? Oh, shame on them. They didn't know better. You know, they couldn't understand this parable. We get the whole thing to look at, right? But on the ground, where we live in the day-to-day, doesn't always make sense, right? I don't fully understand or, you know, know the whole picture of what Jesus is doing or why Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But when I look at the story, I see three things. Jesus' love, Jesus' grief, and Jesus' life. He's the life. The essence of life is Jesus. And I see that Jesus, who describes himself as the life, was still able to grieve. All right, we're going to read a liturgy together. I'll read the reader and you'll read the response. And then the last one we'll read together. We hold space for sorrow. My soul is downcast within me. You keep track of all my sorrows. Lord, help us to believe that our grief is safe with you. You say that those who mourn will be comforted. Come near and comfort us now, Lord. Restore our belief that you can awaken what is asleep, resurrect what is dead, and redeem what is lost. We mourn for the loss and death of what we thought would be, O Lord. We ask that you redeem what we have lost and resurrect our hope. See you all next week for Palm Sunday.